Well, do please uh, take up your Bibles. Uh, page 1,234 is the page number that we're on. If you have a church Bible, if you have your own Bible, uh, Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. And uh, you may find it useful to have uh, this uh, handout in front of you so that you see uh, where we're going, just a, a little uh, direction uh, in uh, the talk tonight. Revelation chapter 2, and Jesus said to the church in Smyrna, verse 9, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you'll suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Read these verses 25 years ago and we might have struggled to make an obvious direct application to the church in Britain. In preaching on this, uh, we may have spoken of the persecuted church around the world and the need to pray for them and support them and maybe even lobby, lobby our MPs for them. But now, in Britain, things are quite different. We're not a million miles from Smyrna. We're living in days when to be Christian in the UK is to be marginalised, ostracised and even persecuted. Take the student scene in this nation. It has been well documented in recent months how some university Christian unions have faced considerable discrimination. The situation at Birmingham University has been explained in Evangelicals Now in this last edition. As the Christian Union were trying to book rooms for their mission week, the politically correct Students' Union scrutinised the CU Constitution, took umbrage at the requirement to sign up to the UCCF basis of faith and told the CU that if uh, they either open their leadership up to anyone of any faith or not use the university rooms. Well, not exactly persecution, uh, but just a little beginning of the way that uh, freedom of speech is uh, not being allowed in our universities. It's not an isolated incident. Exeter, Edinburgh, Heriot, what universities have suffered uh, similarly in these last months. Julia Cameron uh, comments for Evangelicals now like this. Freedom for the gospel has been at stake and we are naive if we do not see longer-term implications for the nation. Well, the news this week has shown us some of those implications. Andrew McClintock, a Christian magistrate who served in the family courts in Sheffield for 15 years, has quit his position because he said civil partnership laws clashed with his religious beliefs. He doesn't agree with adoption by gay couples and the thought of having to sanction the removal of a child from its natural family into the care of a gay couple was not something he is prepared to do. He asked if he could avoid such cases and his request was refused. Christian groups have been warning of the consequences of the government's sexual orientation regulations for some time now, and uh, now it's started to hit the headlines. MPs, including the Lord Chancellor, Lord Faulkner, have said that no exception should be made for those with religious beliefs. If I remember his words correctly, uh, Lord Faulkner said this this week, the law is the law is the law, and the church is just going to have to get used to that. See, the law of this land is becoming increasingly anti-Christian. 
preaching from this pulpit and having sermons posted on the internet as we do, a word taken out of context and I could well be accused of religious hatred. Particularly if I'm going to use Jesus' words here in verse 9, describing Jews as a synagogue of Satan. That's pretty inflammatory, isn't it? Prison for being Christian in Britain is not out of the bounds of possibility anymore. And while we're considering such things, if I do end up in jail for being Christian, uh, could it go on record that all I ask of you, the congregation here, is that you take care of my family and when you visit me, that you bring me cakes? (laughs) Um, Seriously, we must realise that the cold winds of secular fundamentalism and politically correct legislation are blowing through this nation. And if we stand up as we should, it will be costly. And so it is timely that today we visit the church in first century Smyrna in Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. As we do, be sure what's written here is for us and for every church, just as it was for the church in Smyrna. Look at what Jesus says in verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Yes, it's plural. While these words were initially written for the church in first century Smyrna and obviously have very particular details about their situation, we discover that just like the rest of the Bible, these words are as relevant and instructive for all churches. So what of the church in Smyrna? Well, firstly look at, firstly, one, their pains. They were really up against it. Jesus said, verse 9, I know your afflictions. Now, the word for afflictions is flipsis. It has the idea of being crushed beneath a weight, a really heavy weight. The church was under huge pressure. Look, I love sport, pretty much all sport. I'll I'll watch any sport, um, almost. Uh, There are some uh, sports that I'll watch but not play, uh, for obvious reasons. Uh, Rugby. Um, I I love the game, and I'm looking forward to the Six Nations, but I am hopeless at it. I'm just not built for it, in case you hadn't noticed. Um, but I had to play at school. For some reason, I was made to play hooker, right in the middle of the scrum. I know it's ridiculous, isn't it? I don't know it's just because I was a little guy and they could sort of scrum me into the bottom of the scrum. I particularly liked, uh, disliked um, the game every time the scrum collapsed. I ended up at the bottom with a bunch of heavyweights on top of me. On one occasion when the scrum collapsed, I was convinced I was going to die. It might sound a bit extra- uh, uh, over the top, but you just wait in here. Once again, I was right at the bottom of the pile with everyone else on top and with one boy, Michael Waterman, his name will never leave my mind because he was sitting on my head. (laughs) Now that would hurt whoever it had been but Michael Waterman was uh, the biggest boy in the school and when I say big, I'm not talking about his height as much as his width. Uh, I'm not sure how I can put this delicately. Let's just say at 14 he was well developed. Or to put it another way, Michael Waterman was built for comfort, not for speed. I mean, is Michael Waterman here before I carry on? As the boys in the the scrum scrum collapsed and the boys in the scrum took forever to get up, I was convinced that my head was going to burst open and all my brains spill out all over the rugby field. It was a terrible experience. I don't know why you're laughing. And um, it's a terrible experience. I've never been the same since. Uh, Well, that was feeling flipsis, being crushed beneath a weight. And what I felt on that day on the rugby field physically, some of you 
seriously, will have felt emotionally and spiritually. The weight, the pressure of the circumstances of life bearing down upon you. Well, in Smyrna, they certainly knew flipsis. They were up against it financially, verse 9. You see, Jesus says, I know your poverty. Uh, Financially, in Smyrna, they were so not S10. It wasn't just they didn't have a second car and couldn't afford a, a holiday abroad. They didn't have a first car and a holiday at home would have been a luxury indeed. It wasn't just that they were hard up with a growing student loan and, and having to watch the pennies. No, they were nearly destitute. Again, that's the strength of the word translated here, poor, destitute. And their poverty was marked all the more by the, the wealth that surrounded them. Smyrna was an amazing city. Flick through your first century Thompson Summer Sun brochure and the pages describing Smyrna would have had at the top Smyrna, the pride of Asia. That Smyrna had a natural harbour and as a result a flourishing export trade. It was one of the most prosperous cities in Asia Minor. Smyrna had a famous stadium on a par with the new Wembley. Probably it was open, but apart from that it was on a par with the new Wembley. It had an impressive library and the largest public theatre in Asia. Smyrna was big, it was wealthy, it was beautiful and it knew it. So the poverty of the Christians in Smyrna would have been exaggerated by the wealth of that great city. Why they were so poor we're not told, but, but in the context it's not unreasonable to suggest that they, were, that they were poor. Their poverty was a result of their faith in Jesus Christ. They they may have been poor because the Jews and the pagans in the city were not prepared to trade with them. You see, Smyrna was a city of guilds. Craftsmen were closely regulated. And being openly Christian may well have resulted in their membership card being confiscated, just as Christian unions are being excluded from student unions today. And then, of course, they wouldn't be able to find employment. At a job interview, everything seemed to be going so well until the head of human resources got to the part on the application form, other interests. Oh, I see you're involved in, in the church. Tell me, is that something you feel strongly about? If we offered you this job, would you be prepared to stop attending church? No? Well, thank you for your application, we'll be in touch. And as the Christian walked out of the office, he knew very well that they wouldn't be in touch. It's not a million miles from the British scene. I know a good number of people who feel they've been overlooked for promotion at work because of their Christian commitment. Well, here in Smyrna it was worse. Not just overlooked for promotion, but without a job altogether. And that left the Christians in Smyrna poor, destitute. But financial difficulties were not the only trials life had thrown at them. They suffered persecution. See halfway through verse 9, Jesus says, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. See, the Christians in Smyrna knew real and personal persecution from the Jews in that city. It's likely that people have been converted from Judaism and joined the church in Smyrna. Jews who'd come to realise that the Messiah of their own scriptures, the Messiah that they were waiting for, was none other than Jesus of Nazareth. So they'd left the synagogue and joined the Christians and now went to church And the Jews were livid. So they spread rumours and made accusations and misrepresentations that made the news of the world look positively upright. You see, that's what happens when the church is faithful in reaching out to other religions. Think of a fine Christian man down south. He's an evangelist to Muslims. And Muslims hate him. They spread rumours about him, they cause trouble for him. 
They hate him because he exposed the lies of Islam. And they hate him most of all because through his ministry, Muslims have become Christians. See, he loves Muslims. He loves them enough to tell them the truth about Jesus and he has literally taken the hits for it, thumped on countless occasions at Speaker's Corner in Hyde Park. When people are converted to Christ from another religion, those other religions hate it and they hate the Christians that are involved in that. That's why it's so hard to do. The Jews in first century Smyrna did that. So they gave the Christians grief. And for treating his people like that, Jesus describes these people as Jews from hell, verse 9. They are a synagogue of Satan. It's straight talk, isn't it? Not politically correct. And a good case for inciting racial hatred, don't you think? But before we're tempted to write off these words, remember they come from the lips of Jesus, the most loving man who ever lived. Please note Jesus' words here and note that it is Christian to expose falsehood. And it is Christian to speak against other religions, especially when they are against Christians. Because when people are against Christians, they are against Christ. And when people are against Christ, they are committing the greatest crime in the universe. And we must expose that so that those who are held in captive to these wicked religions can be brought free, freedom in Christ. If we don't tell them, they will always remain bound. And if we are too frightened to speak out against other religions, they will always remain bound. You see, the Jews were meant to point people to Jesus as the Christ. The whole of their scriptures, everything we have in the Old Testament, points to the Christ. But not just any Christ, but to Jesus. And so Jesus says, if they are slandering those who have turned to Christ, whatever they call themselves, they are not Jews. They're in league with the devil. A synagogue of Satan. And anyone who persecutes Christians today is in league with the devil. That was Christianity in Smyrna. Under huge pressure, materially poor, hated by others. That was their pains. Well, secondly, what of their possessions? See, Jesus says, verse 9, I know your poverty, yet you are rich. They had nothing, yet spiritually they were millionaires. Rich because they knew the all-powerful, all-conquering Lord of all creation. Rich because of the future inheritance that would be theirs one day. You see, we do realise, don't we, you can have everything and yet have nothing. Equally, you can have nothing materially and yet have everything in the world. I can remember on one occasion visiting two homes in one afternoon and the contrast was so marked. The first house I went into was on a council estate, very similar to the estate I was brought up on and and the estate that my parents still live on. The family had very little. Dad had been made redundant some months earlier. Mum was struggling with bad health. Life was tough for this family. They knew what it was to suffer. Yet it was such a happy home. They were Christian people who radiated their love for Jesus. They made me so welcome. Spiritually, they were rich. I left that home after a little while and went across to an amazing house across town. It was the home of a very successful businessman. As a family, they had everything they wanted, everything. 
But it was such an unhappy home. See, they had everything and yet they had nothing. In Smyrna, it was the other way round. They had nothing. And yet they were rich, says Jesus. Materially destitute and they were persecuted by the Jews but they were spiritual millionaires because they trusted Jesus so much. And and I'm left wondering if their spiritual wealth came through suffering. It is so often the case, isn't it, that we grow and develop in godliness when we suffer. Sometimes that's the only way we learn the lessons that won't be learnt any other way. Not that that way of talking is very popular in many Christian circles these days. Many popular theologies have no place for suffering. You go to some churches and they say that all suffering is, is a terrible thing. Well, of course it's bad. The suffering of these Christians was terrible and it's very hard for them. And, and I don't want to say anything to undermine that or to undermine any of the suffering that many of the people in this congregation are going through. But through their circumstances, they grew in Christian maturity. They became rich in the depth of their relationship with Jesus because persecution makes us pray. Rich in their commitment to Christ because we wouldn't go on suffering if we were nominal in our Christianity. Rich in relationships because we need each other when we're really up against it. Rich in theology because we have to be certain of what we believe when we're being persecuted. See, they were rich. Smyrna was a hugely impressive church. They'd have been nothing to look at from the outside, but Jesus saw their hearts and his assessment is quite something. It would be a wonderful thing, wouldn't it, for Jesus to say of Christ's church forward, you are rich. Smyrna was an impressive church in Jesus' eyes. And so you might expect Jesus to deliver them from their afflictions. But be surprised as thirdly we look at their prospects. You see, Jesus doesn't promise them freedom from suffering at all. He actually says it's going to get worse before it gets better. Look at verse 10. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you'll suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death. What a surprise. Remember who's speaking here. This is the exalted and majestic Jesus Christ of chapter 1 that we saw a couple of weeks back. The all-powerful, almighty one. Can't he deliver them? Well, yes he can, but not as we might expect. See, the first thing Jesus promises them is suffering and prison, and for some of them, death, more persecution. He promised them a period of suffering. I guess that's the point of verse 10, the ten days. Not a literal ten days, but a suffering that would come to an end. And how would it end? For some of them it would end in death. And you might ask, but what sort of end to suffering is that? Do you remember the sad death of Victoria Columbier? Do you remember that name? Uh, the, The poor little girl who died of cruelty and neglect when she was under the care of social services. I remember someone saying to my vicar at the time, Richard Buse, they said, Richard, why didn't God deliver Victoria Columbier from that suffering? And Richard quietly replied, I think he did. That's verse 10, isn't it? The only way out of suffering for some is through a coffin. But if we really believe in a glorious life beyond the grave for those who trust in Christ, then death 
is deliverance from suffering for the Christian. Verse 10, be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life. That's the future for the Christian. A crown of life beyond the grave. And to be certain of that is how we will be able to remain faithful even to the point of death. That's why Jesus introduced himself as he did in verse 8. These are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. The persecuted church needed to know that Jesus is the resurrected Lord, the one who has conquered death. That is the only way you and I will ever face death for Jesus. We've heard something of the persecuted church tonight in Sudan. We thought about how it might be coming our way. All over the world in the 21st century, Christians are suffering for being Christian and Christians are being murdered because they are Christian. Even today. Why are they prepared to do that? Because they are certain that Jesus is, verse 8, the first and the last, the one who died and came to life again. Let me ask you this evening, are you sure of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? I'm not asking you if you know about it. I'm not asking you if you know that's what Christians believe in. I'm asking you if you're sure that it happened. Do you have a certainty about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? Someone asked me this week why I was sure that Jesus was risen from the dead. Christian, could you answer that question if someone asked you this week? The same person then asked me why Jesus' resurrection was proof that Christians would have eternal life. That was a good question, wasn't it? Christian, could you answer that question? Just because Jesus rose, why is that certain that you're going to rise? Do you know the answer? See, the climate is changing in Britain. As Christians, we've enjoyed years, decades, centuries of freedom to express and hold on to the truth. But it seems that's changing. And so to stand for Christ is going to cost us And if we're not sure about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead in this climate, then when it gets tough to follow him, we are likely to chuck it in. Or just go quiet. Well, let me say to you again, we've got this uh, Christianity Explored course beginning in, in February, and if you're not sure of these fundamentals, well, this would be a great thing to come to so that you can become sure. Firm up on, on the resurrection along with other things so that you can be sure of these things. Be certain that Jesus is the one who died and came to life again and you'll have a fighting chance of being sold out for him and suffering for him and being imprisoned for him and even dying for him because he guarantees you a crown of life, verse 10. But that's not all. Listen to the way Jesus ends his words to the church at Smyrna in verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. You see, Jesus not only gives his followers an eternal crown of life and that certainty of eternal life, he also tells us that he rescues us from the second death, eternal death. You can read about it in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8. It is death after death. 
You see, Jesus is very clear. There is a fate worse than death. Oh, yes, there is. And it is the appalling agony of eternal judgment and eternal separation from God. And Christians alone are certain of escaping that. If you're not a Christian here tonight, again, let me say to you, will you come on the Christianity Explored course? Will you discover on that course how you can escape the second death? Because life might be very comfortable for you right now and you might be very happy as you are, but death is not your problem, it is death after death, eternal separation from God, and it is a terrible, terrible thing, and Jesus wants to rescue you from it. Well, whether we're Christian or not yet, we need to know about the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. See, in this current climate and facing new laws which pose an alarming threat to the religious liberties of churches and individual Christians, may we, like the church in Smyrna, be rich in Christ and may we remain faithful, whatever that leads us to. Let's pray.